throughout the season of Advent, we are looking at the theology embedded in our Advent hymns. This morning's hymn is one of the few hymns that was actually written in my lifetime. There's nothing like a good Irish melody to get stuck in your head for the rest of the day. Canticle of the Turning is one of my favorites. By the way, if you've ever wondered what a canticle is, specifically, Josh and I had to look this up this week, a canticle is a song based on a biblical song other than the Psalms. We sometimes think that all the songs in the Bible come from the book of Psalms, but in the rest of the biblical narrative, there are embedded at different places other songs in the mouths of the various people that the scriptures describe. And so a canticle is one of those psalms. Uh, For instance, the Song of Mary, uh, embedded in Luke chapter 1, which we will read in a moment, is a canticle when we re-sing it today in our contemporary hymns. Both of our scripture lessons this morning are songs from the scriptural narrative outside of the book of Psalms. The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is the song of Hannah. Uh, The Old Testament historical books begin with Hannah, this woman who is longing for a child in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And at the end of the chapter, God grants her request, and she finds herself pregnant and expecting a son. And in celebration of this news, she sings the song that we will read now in chapter 2. I invite you as you listen to this song and the next to notice the thematic similarities between Hannah's song and Mary's song. There's a great deal of overlap between the two. So I invite you to listen specifically for those similarities. Listen now for God's word to you. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the depths and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. 
And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Mary's Magnificat. Listen once again for God's word to you. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1531, an Aztec peasant by the name of Juan Diego reported that he had seen a glowing figure standing on a hill near what was then Tenochtitlan and is today Mexico City. The figure spoke to him, asking him to build her a shrine on that hill so that she could share her love and compassion with all who believe. The figure identified herself as Mary, the mother of God, and the mother of all humankind. Juan Diego reported what he had seen that day to the Catholic Archbishop Juan de Zumarraga, who quickly rejected Diego's claims. Proof that the Blessed Virgin had appeared to him would be required, said Zumarraga. After all, he must have thought, why would the Queen of Heaven appear to an indigenous peasant? So Juan Diego returned to the hill and encountered Mary again. She told him to summit the hill and pick some flowers from the top to present to the archbishop as proof that she had appeared. Although it was winter, Diego found at the top of the hill an abundance of flowers, many of which he picked and tucked into his cloak and took to the archbishop. Zumarraga recognized the flowers as Castilian roses, found at the time in Spain, but not in Mexico. And more miraculous still, an imprint of Mary bowed in prayer had appeared on, on Diego's cloak. To this day, Diego's cloak is preserved as perhaps the most sacred artifact in all of Mexico. And over 20 million people a year visit the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe, built on the very hill where Diego first encountered Mary. Over time, Our Lady of Guadalupe has become an inspiration among native peoples in Spain, in Mexico, uh, in their struggle against the Spanish overlords. And furthermore, Mary's female likeness inspired resistance against the patriarchal dominance that Spain imported to the Americas. Our Lady of Guadalupe holds a special place in the national, the national consciousness of Mexico as a symbol of struggle, defiance against oppression. Octavio Paz, the famous Mexican poet and diplomat, 
has called Our Lady of Guadalupe the Mother of Mexico. And as for Juan Diego, he was declared a saint by the Catholic Church in the year 2000. Apparitions of Mary are recorded and cataloged by the Catholic Church. And although during the Middle Ages, Mary was often said to have appeared to religious elite, over the last couple of centuries, she has mostly been said to have appeared to lay people and peasants like Juan Diego. Beyond her miraculous apparitions, Mary's influence throughout the history of Christian thought is really quite remarkable. Although she does play an important role in the biblical narrative, of course, by giving birth to our Savior Jesus Christ, her theological legacy surely outweighs her prominence in the biblical text itself. Ideas about Mary have historically gone in all sorts of directions. If you begin peering through the pages of history or gazing at artists' depictions of Mary or singing the hymns of the church, you'll soon realize that there are just about as many depictions of the mother of God as there are of the son of God. For different people at different times and for different reasons, Mary is the epitome of faith, the archetype of femininity, or the paragon of chastity. Much like scripture declares Christ to be the second Adam, Mary is often depicted as the second Eve, who, unlike the first Eve, is obedient to God's word and embraces it. During the Middle Ages, Mary came to be known as the Mater Dolorosa, or Mother of Sorrows. Standing at the foot of the cross, Mary witnessed and lamented the death of her son, even while it achieved the salvation of the world. And so Mary has often been closely associated with the tension inherent in grief. Mary has also been the subject of much theological speculation as well, tangled up as she is in Christian liturgy and worship. The presence of her song in the Gospel of Luke gave birth to the tradition that Mary was very musical. St. Augustine identified Mary with the damsel playing the timbrel in Psalm 68 in the Jerusalem temple. It's also been said that Mary is the one who leads the heavenly choir. In his 1906 hymn, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, John Riley declares that it is Mary, the bearer of the eternal word, who conducts the praises of the heavenly host. He writes, O higher than the cherubim, most glorious than the seraphim, lead their praises, alleluia, thou bearer of the eternal word, most gracious, magnify the Lord, alleluia. In Catholic and Orthodox traditions, Mary features prominently in iconography and functions importantly in the role of intercessor. It's Christ who intercedes for us before the Father. And so if you want to ensure that Christ doesn't overlook your prayers and offers them to the Father, well, then it makes sense to ask Mary to offer them to Christ, for Christ will surely listen to his mother, or so the thinking goes. We Protestants do not always think so deeply about Mary, contrarian as we were to her standing in the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation. 
uncomfortable with Mary's liturgical prominence, Protestants rejected the distinction that Catholics made between reverence for Mary and the saints, for that matter, and the adoration or worship that was due only to God. For Protestants, Christ is the only intercessor needed to access God, and he needs no compulsion or convincing from Mary or the saints or anyone else. Now, it may be easy to think that there's a huge difference in understanding between Catholics' understanding of the intercessory role that Mary plays and Protestants' understanding of intercessors, but it's worth pointing out that if you've ever asked someone to pray for you, you have enlisted the help of an intercessor. Uh, Even our prayers for other people are called intercessory prayers. So it's not as if we have no understanding of the role of intercessor. Protestants simply tend to look for intercessors among the church universal here on earth, while Catholics may look for them as well in the church universal with Mary and the saints. What's more, the theological traditions about Mary, or Mariology, if you will, fell away on account of the Protestant reformers' insistence on sola scriptura, that is, the insistence that scripture alone takes precedence over church tradition. And so, to this day, Protestants make almost no use of the words, Hail Mary, full of grace, even though that phrase is actually taken verbatim from scripture. It's Gabriel's salutation, or greeting, when he visits Mary. Still, though, I think it's worth asking ourselves, as Protestants, what inspiration, if any, Mary might provide for our own lives of faith and devotion. When it comes to the mother of God, we need not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, given that her baby is our Savior and Lord. So while we may not enlist Mary as our intercessor or consider her to be immaculately conceived, that doesn't mean that she has nothing to teach us. Indeed, as we consider our scripture text today, a certain depiction of Mary emerges that is somewhat unexpected, perhaps surprising, given the history of ideas about Mary. The Mary of the Magnificat is the ultimate exemplar of the biblical motif of defiance. Defiance. Mary's song makes clear that though the world is not as it ought to be, God is not done shaping history. The child in her womb is going to change everything. The world is about to turn. And so Mary becomes for us the embodiment of gritty hope, just what we need in the midst of a broken world. Mary doesn't lament the hardship that her unexpected pregnancy might cause her. She doesn't shy away from her crucially important role that God has given her within salvation history. She doesn't fear the increased vulnerability to which she is now susceptible within her society. Instead, Mary hears the promise of God's redemptive plan, and she says, yes, count me in. Let's do this. Today's hymn, The Canticle of the Turning, captures the heart of the Magnificat and Mary's sense of defiance in the face of injustice and heartbreak. 
My heart will sing of the day you bring. Let the fires of your justice burn. Wipe away all tears, for the dawn draws near, and the world is about to turn. You see, Mary should be a source of inspiration for all of us, because she does not accept the world as it is, ill-equipped though she may be with its political, economic, and social power. Nor does she declare that the fruit of her womb will lead to a mass exodus out of a self-destructing world. No, Mary's son is going to transform the world. And although the world is full of the mighty and the powerful, God's work through Christ will reverse the brokenness that persists in creation. The power of God pulses through the world, and the fires of God's justice burn at the foundations of any structure that's built on a philosophy of might makes right. Against all odds, Mary trusts what God is doing. Mary receives the news that she will bear the Lord with a joyful, defiant shout of acclamation. God is at it again. God is setting captives free. God is lifting up the lowly. God is feeding the hungry. And though human power proliferates, Mary knows that God's power percolates beneath the heavy burdens of injustice and despair. Let the king beware, for your justice tears every tyrant from his throne, the hymn declares. God's mercy must deliver us from the conqueror's crushing grasp. Mary's Magnificat and the canticles it inspires are instructive to us when we think about the posture with which we should live in the world. Mary reminds us that if we really believe in the power of God, if we really believe that God is still doing great things, if we really believe that God is still keeping God's promises, then our posture towards the world's sin and brokenness should still be one of a defiance that insists the world does not have to be this way. Mary is a model of faith not just for women, as has sometimes been suggested, but for all of us who believe in the power of God to transform the world. It's easy for our defiance to dissolve into resignation when suffering and injustice persist. It's easy to be outraged for a little while but never take action. It's easy to lose our faith in God's power when violence constantly continues when strong men dominate nations large and small, when inequality continues to widen around the globe, when we simply don't see the kingdom of God unfolding and emerging around us on earth as it is in heaven, it's easy to shrug and say, well, the world may not be perfect, but it's good enough for me. But whenever we think that the Bible is naive in God's lavish promises to our deeply dysfunctional and conflict-ridden world, it's important to remember that almost none of the Bible was written from the promised land. From Egypt to Babylon to Rome, the promises of God have always come to a weary, burdened people and dared them to be defiant to pursue the will of God, and to work for the kingdom of God against all odds. 
So whatever else we might make of the accounts of Mary's apparitions throughout history, it is interesting to note, isn't it, their correspondence with the Magnificat's themes of defiance and hope. It's only fitting that Mary is said to have appeared to peasants like Juan Diego, vulnerable as he was beneath the conquistador's crushing grasp. It's only fitting that Mary has often been said to appear to those suffering the loss of a loved one, familiar as she would become with the heartbreak of losing a child. To everyone who feels powerless in our broken and fearful world, Mary's unique agency, which is born from her confidence in God's promises and her defiance before injustice, Mary's unique agency inspires in us faith as we declare with her, may it be to us according to God's word. God is not done working in the world the promises of our Lord will continue to unfold before us. Today's Caring Tree Project, I think, is a good example of Mary's defiant sort of faith. You see, it would be easy to say that there's too many children in need to ever make a difference, too much poverty for every child to receive a gift at Christmas. It'd be easy to say that we spent too much money on our own families to have anything left to contribute to others. But for us to come together and offer this many presents to those less fortunate is to insist with Mary that God is still moving in the world, that God is still lifting up the lowly, God is still filling the hungry with good things. In a world of inequality, the Caring Tree Project is an act of defiance that insists that God loves and cares about all children. So my friends, in light of the inspiration we find in Mary, let us take a serious look at our own faith and renew our sense of determination to work for the kingdom of God. And let us be on our guard against resignation and despair lest we lose the luster and zest on display in Mary's song. Let us lay claim to the power of God brought among us once again through Mary, for the child in her womb is still the light of all people. I can't help but wonder what might Mary say if she were to make an appearance among us today. What might we need to hear after these last two years of near-constant pandemic-induced discouragement and the divisive disdain throughout our culture? What might Mary wish to say to the cynic who has decided that the world will never be perfect, so why bother to work for change? I can only speculate, but I suppose she might say something like, don't give up, don't get discouraged. Don't stop expecting to see God's promises unfold. After all, God's mercy is from generation to generation. The world is about to turn. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.